This is The Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or fate to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. Within each discussion, there is a live interactive audience who engages in a question-and-answer session with the guest in the podcast's second half. This episode is brought to you via the Ukraine sitrep room on Clubhouse, which has been continuously running since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, surpassing 1 million unique listeners on April 20th of 2022. Want to learn how to participate? Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And do not forget to engage with us on social media. And if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Thank you very much for listening and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode uh, of The Global Gambit. As always, it's Piotr speaking, but this time around, we're doing something rather interesting. We are um, having a live conversation. When I mean live, I mean actually in person. Uh, I'm very honoured to be speaking uh, with the uh, great and renowned... um, Alex Finman, Colonel Alexander Finman, uh, who was a very important voice, testimonies uh, against President Trump a couple of years ago. He was the director of Europe for the National Security Council uh, and has seen a very important set of responsibilities, I think, handed to him over quite a established career. So, Alex, I'd love you to just share with us how you're feeling and uh, maybe uh, as a bit of a lighthearted question to get us going, what's going on with you and Elon then? I think there's a... a uh, a continuity and I guess, you know, my being drawn into the public eye, it seems to me that the the common thread see, uh, is a uh, battle of uh, principles and values for those that seem to espouse uh, extremism, that seem to uh, espouse anti-democratic notions. Uh, and I guess my, my uh, long military and public service career in defending national or American values, principles, rights. And I find myself in a position probably based on the fact that I had a long and quite successful career up until a point rising through, um, you know, the, var- the, the government bureaucracy to be in a position to continue d- to defend uh, and advance U.S. national security interests against not just foreign adversaries, but even those within the United States that seem to ha- uh, be authoritarian curious, seem to think that, um, you know, maybe some of these institutions that we built over decades and centuries um, are, uh, you know, the question of democracy needs to be revisited. And I, I find myself uh, undeterred and an aggressive proponent for what I believe to be uh, what America is about and, you know, our kind of a sense of American exceptionalism rooted in the aspiration of creating a, a more perfect union, I guess. 
And I'll do that. I did that in, in, in uniform. I did that, you know, when dragged into the public eye. And I'll do that now as a pri- uh, private citizen. And somehow those folks that uh, believe themselves to be unaccountable, to be, believe themselves to be able to act with impunity, I'm prepared to challenge them if I need to. So you and Musk are, I think, emblematic of obviously a bigger thing that's going on. And, and just to bring it to sort of the geopolitical element, I mean, please work in your personal grievances as you like. But, you know, a year ago, we had the Summit for Democracies here in Washington. And we had the United, uh, the Russians and the Chinese sort of responding with their sort of axis of autocracies. But now, a year on, we have protests in China. We have a Russian economy which is struggling. It's not dead yet, but it's struggling. And we have an Iran that is facing, you know, near as it makes no difference, a, a large-scale revolt. How do you see now the current circumstances we're in? You know, is democracy better than it has been, or are we still struggling with the autocratic democratic challenge? You know, it's, it's interesting watching this arc. I remember publishing probably one of my very first articles as, as a civilian in December of 2020, uh, a year before the, the president's, uh, President Biden's democracy summit advocating for this notion of marshalling the strength of democracy to push back on a surging tide of authoritarianism. And I think that that the narrative for a long time has been this notion that democracy is besieged, it's beleaguered by its own divisions, uh, under attack by authoritarian regimes looking to exploit those divisions, and that democracy is on on the decline. But frankly, maybe just like many analysts seem to miss what was going on with regards to Ukraine and Ukraine's uh, amazing defense of, of, of its democracy and independence and, and sovereignty, uh, maybe we're missing the big picture that fundamentally democracies are stronger than authoritarian regimes. They're more resilient. They're more flexible um, because of the fact that, you know, it's a consultative process in democracies. They're able to make adjustments that rigid authoritarian regimes cannot. And we're seeing that play out on the international stage with regards to these protests in China with overreach with regards to COVID uh, and, and a zero COVID policy with regards to Iran and the suppression of rights of 50% of the population, as well as, frankly, infringement on the rights of the entirety of, the, uh, of Iran's population. And we see it firsthand on the battlefields in, in Ukraine. Uh, those are both the, the military battlefields, the, the contest between the military forces, but also the contest of wills between the Ukrainian people and the, and the Russian people. And we see, frankly, a very tough, very capable response from democracies when under threat. So I think maybe the story might be, looking back on this period of time, about surging democracy, uh, surging authoritarianism because of because of the coherence of democracy and ultimately this this is one of those pivotal moments in the 21st century where democracy continues to advance like it did in in 1989 1991 uh and at other pivotal moments uh continued to advance and, and will through the 21st century at least that's what i hope to hear and see so one of the things that just to follow up on that then, though, is, is in the past, I think you could say maybe 20, 30 years more than recently, is the rise of hybrid regimes. This idea that we have, uh, I think what the West did wrong in some ways was this assumption that everybody would follow 
their interpretation of democracy. I mean, look at Russia and the attempt of doing so in the 90s. Look at this gradualism set of policies the Chinese undertook. But we've now seen, say, in the past 10 years, as people have pushed for this deglobalization, populism has risen, countries like Hungary, Poland, to a lesser extent, and Turkey have this weird mesh of democratic institutions but autocratic tendencies. I mean, Viktor Orban, I'll use him as a case in point. You know, he's undermined the democratic uh, institutions and framework of Hungary for over a decade now. So we've got a illiberal democracy. So how do you feel about, you know, allies, partners that are sort of teetering on the edge, so to speak? I mean, the Freedom House Index calls it flawed democracies. I mean, look at the United States in its own self in the past two Two, three, yes. How do you how do you how do you feel about this sort of weird blend of sentiments that we have on both sides? So you know, I guess when I when I thought about this question about democracy, uh, global democracy, I thought about it in kind of three different tiers. I thought about it as developed democracies that need to harden, um, deal with the various challenges they have with in, inside the societies, with uh, populations being left behind. By transformation, whether that's the a digital age transformation, demographic transformation, whatever the case might be, and I thought about it as uh, developing democracies like Turkey, like uh, emerging, you know, with a, with a relatively uh, it's a young democracy uh, uh, emerging out of a very recent um, military re- regimes. Hungary doesn't have a long history with democracy also because of the Iron Curtain being subject to communism. And I think that the fact is that those were uh, not entirely ripe and, frankly, uh, experiments with democracy. And and the story is is still being written on where they go. I think that there is uh, some evidence to suggest that uh, even somebody like um, Erdogan doesn't have an iron grip on uh, Turkey and uh, is is potentially facing some uh, electoral reversals. Poland, based on the geopolitics and the regional politics in, in its neighborhood, uh, it's unclear if they're going to continue to pursue this uh, undemocratic uh, line. So those are areas where we need to continue to nurture democratic institutions and democratic values. And the bigger problem, actually, is, is the places that never really had democracy, um, whether that's a very, very brief experiment in democracy in Russia that maybe amounted to a decade or so, or never had it, period, uh, in China. And that's where we need to um, nurture democratic values and democratic institutions, even if there are some, some cost to democracies in commercial costs or the ability to achieve kind of short-term um, objectives with regards to well, policy objectives, whether that's you know economic uh, trade relations uh, or even in the arms control sphere, that's where, where we had the, the most success with a place like Russia. We thought that we could do a lot more with Russia than we really could. It was a, We had only a, a narrow window and a narrow set of topics that we could engage with Russia because they never really kind of fully bought into uh, Western democracies and uh, that, that that was the, the, the functional system for them. So I guess the bottom line is um, we're seeing this in stride. It's hard to kind of, uh, through the haze, of uh, geopolitics and crisis to discern exactly what's going on. I think historians will be better judges of how those uh, struggling democracies developed and we'll be able to uh, have this conversation more effectively a decade from now. I think to me, uh, as a you know policymaker, I, I focus on those, those three kind of spheres that, that are most important. Harding Western democracies, the ones that are going to 
be the engines of democratic change, nurturing struggling democracies, uh, the, those including those that are experiencing some uh, democratic backsliding. I think India is a place of, of significant concern. And then, frankly, nurturing democratic values broadly on uh, democratic institutions around the world. If we could continue to, to, to have an affirmative policy, not do too much navel gazing, we could advance the cause of democracy at large. Yeah, you mentioned India. Now, India is a notable example, and I don't want to spend too much on this. I want to primarily go to Ukraine and Europe because that's where you obviously did a lot of work. But um, India is um, a, a unique case in point in that it has retained this stubborn and frankly impressive strategic ambiguity or autonomy rather for what uh since its independence in the 1940s and yet they i I think you could argue that there isn't so much a pull factor like the united states has been trying for decades to pull india close on side they are the world's largest democracy but you wouldn't necessarily say they're a full liberal democracy this is someone i had a conversation with in pi's uh, dan markia a few months ago but india has been pushed towards the United States because of China's belligerency in the Southeast Asian region. And um, so we'd say the skirmishes over Tibet in that border in 2020. So how do you see countries that are of such strategical importance to the United States, not necessarily just India? I mean, we've now seen Lula re-elected, uh, re- who's a bit more favorable, but he himself said he doesn't want to see a Cold War between China and the US. So could you just take us through maybe from a US-centric perspective outwards, looking to other major powers and how to engage those that are sort of, again, democratic, but want to go their own way. Yeah, thanks, Peter. I, I would first say, if Elon Musk, if you're listening, you're welcome to join the conversation. Uh, we probably won't let you usurp it, but you're welcome to join and, and you know, partake in the exchange. But I think, you know, the way I, I so I just finished, I just submitted my doctoral uh, thesis, actually, uh, just a couple of days ago. And one of the things I, I the topic is, is, um, U.S. foreign policy towards um, Ukraine and, and Russia, but I'm able to extrapolate some conclusions more broadly. And one of those conclusions was that the U.S., while it, there were many, many reasons to engage with Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, national interests driving cooperation on uh, arms control, nuclear disarmament, you know, uh, aspirations of uh, democratic reforms, integration in Western institutions. We made some mistakes, certainly past the 90s and into the into the Putin uh, regime. We missed the indicators to shift from a uh, cooperative relationship to, uh, you know, more of a uh, constraining. I don't the containment is a loaded word, but a constraining relationship, something that uh, condemned condemned Russia's um, spiral into authoritarianism. And why we did that is. Because of a bit of American hubris, I completely believe in American exceptionalism. I believe in this notion that the U.S. still retains the the status of the sole uh, global superpower. Uh, I think that, you know, there are, don't get me wrong, I think that uh, there's a rise in other powers and, uh, you know, relative decline uh, comparatively from where we we were uh, three decades ago or four decades ago. But we still kind of in total... May, could maintain that mantle for, for some time longer. We may maintain it indefinitely. Uh, but there is an element of hubris associated with it in that we, where we think we invest, where we believe we have our aspirations, we could achieve, uh, somehow uh, realize uh, our objectives. So an aspirational po- uh, foreign policy that thinks just by force of will, force of American will, we're able to achieve a potential, potential outcome. We forget about the agency of our counterparts. 
we forget about the agency of our adversaries and we forget about the agency of our potential partners. So when, I, when we get back to this topic of uh, Russia and Ukraine, at some point, if Russia was the regional priority for us, certainly through the 90s, based on uh, high hopes for a, a prosperous relationship, achieving a whole host of uh, cooperative outcomes, by the time you get into the 2000s, there is a, a, a growing list of very, very significant warnings about anti-democratic actions. And it becomes clear that we actually can't achieve that much with, with regards to a cooperative relationship. What should that do? Should we continue to beat our head against the wall with regards to Russia and, and force them, compel them somehow to a outcome, a to a, a you know, policy aim? Or do we then rejigger our foreign policy to what seemed like secondary partnerships, like Ukraine, and invest in those on the basis of outcomes, on the fact that the counterpart in those scenarios was a willing partner, a partner that we could actually achieve some concrete aims, long-term aims like enhancing regional stability, hedging against a Russian rise. So this, go, this takes me back to the, the point about uh, India. India has had agency from independence. It was a large country with a large population that was always going to be kind of a regional hedge, uh, uh, heavyweight in its region. Uh, we could, I think, um, if democracy gives us some sort of entree to engaging with India, that's clearly not going to be enough. There needs to be a component of values and interests to drive that relationship. At various times, we've had uh, uh, both combination of values and interests. Values based on, again, democracy, common view uh, of, of uh, you know, what, what a world order should, should look like. But interest is driven on the fact that there are security threats to India emanating from China and that uh, India needs to have a, a strong relationship with uh, other partnerships, whether that's in the form of, uh, of the Quad. Not that they want to, uh, let's say, shake off neutrality and take a completely adversarial uh, uh, position with regards to China, but some hedge on, on, uh, on Chinese uh, adventurism, some hedge on, on Chinese uh, military aggression in the future if China go, chooses to go that way. And I don't think they necessarily have just yet. Um, so I think we need to really think about a, a foreign policy that takes into account uh, the limits of, of uh, U.S. power and looks for uh, willing partnerships, not adversarial relationships, and invest in those, or just great powers for that matter. So one of the things, and, and thank you for that, I, I think India is largely still excluded from great power competition or politic, political dis discourse, which for me, I don't understand. You know, they, they may be more independent or part of the non-aligned movement, but they represent, uh, I think, a, a core component of any you know, US Western orientated. But leaving that aside, we'll, we'll come back to China and um, certain themes of that later on. I want to touch upon what you said about the hubris, because... I personally have a lot of... I'm having an identity crisis. My father is Russian, comes from Novosibirsk and Siberia. My mother's British, she comes from Sussex. So I have this weird, weird personal paradigm, not just professional, of the West-East, West-Russian relationship. But I want to set not just maybe Western, but NATO specifically. Uh, and there was an article that was published earlier this year, in January, that was written by George Robertson. I'm sure you're familiar, he was the ex um, Secretary General of NATO. And he wrote basically, when Putin loved NATO. Now, I don't know if it was ever that much, but for him and some other people, there was a lost opportunity 
particularly when Putin took over from Yeltsin and, you know, clamped down on the Chechen wars. But there was still an opportunity to galvanize a slightly more aligned relationship with Russia. I'm trying to find my words very carefully here, because I don't think there was an opportunity for Russia to necessarily be a full-blown ally, but certainly a constructive partner in certain areas, say terrorism, when NATO lacked a clear identity or, or cause, not now it's completely got its cause back, let's be honest. Do you not think that the West was a little bit hubris, that were the, the, the hypocrisy that the West has shown at times is part of the underlying problem that not just Russia has, but China, that Iran, a lot of non-aligned nations have. Because half the time, if you say what Russia's doing in Ukraine is abhorrent, they just go, well, what about the illegal war in Iraq? What about what the Americans did with the Mujahideen uh, at the end of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 80s? So it's always this sort of what about it. You know, and I'm, I'm not trying to go down that rabbit hole too much, but do you, do you think that there was a missed opportunity for greater collaboration with Russia and NATO that could have uh, prevented this, prevented Georgia, prevented or and generally we were never going to see uh, such an alignment? Yep. Well, I think um, I'll, I'll first start on this uh, kind of uh, equivalency uh, component. I think, you know, there's something uh, qualitatively different between wars, uh, you know, I don't know, again, maybe uh, I, I'm a little bit um, biased here, but between democracies and authoritarian regimes, you know, where this is, this shouldn't in any way justify our wars in, in Iraq. That was a war of choice. Uh, that was an unnecessary war. Uh, that was not, that was not a war uh, to, you know, def, uh, de to defend against terrorism or a punitive war against Al Qaeda, like uh, Afghanistan sometimes referred to as the good war. I don't, I don't think you could draw any such equivalencies between Russia and Ukraine. But I think um, the fundamental question about missed opportunities, I would, see, I would say that there was a different kind of missed opportunity. That missed opportunity occurred closer to the collapse of the Soviet Union. In, uh, in 1992, in 1993, when there was an enormous kind of euphoria about the freedoms uh, inherent in democracy uh, that was very, very quickly um, doused by the times of trouble, right? the economic collapse, the lawlessness in Russia. And that in that window, we missed a huge opportunity. We missed an opportunity for a Marshall Plan type endeavor that could have invested in, in democracy in, in Russia um, in a in doubling down on a kind of a, a, a revolution, not the partial revolution that Russia experienced with political elites maintaining control uh, of most of the institutions of power. Uh, we did that not just in, in Russia, we did that in Ukraine, we did that throughout the former Soviet space. We, we decided that a relatively modest investment to the tune of tens of billions of dollars in the region to uh, demonstrate the viability and prosperity associated with democracy wasn't worth it. You know, we had our own uh, election cycle in 1992. We had a recession. It was the economy stupid motto uh, from uh, Bill Clinton. And we decided that we were not going to make those kinds of investments. So it was a relatively small window where we could have taken action. I think by the time you get into the uh, late to, uh, late 1990s and early 2000s, I think that window was largely closed. I, I like to think about like Carl Bildt, who had some who had some interesting commentary on what Russia was demanding. You know, once you get into the 2000s, it was not demanding to be one of the the 
uh, partners in a grand European enterprise or pan-European security uh, structure. It wanted to be the equivalent of the entirety of Europe and NATO. It wanted to maintain the artifact. It wanted to hang on to the legacy of Soviet exceptionalism, the artifacts of, of Soviet power, and to be treated as an equal, not with you know the likes of the larger economies such as Germany or France or Great Britain. It wanted to be the equal of all to- all of them total, because they couldn't really let go of, of that Russian sense of exceptionalism that was no longer justified by either military might, economic might. So I think the window really w- was much, much uh, n- more narrow. And by the time you get into the 2000s, my, my readings suggest that Russia was also looking at uh, involvement in NATO as a hedge, as a veto, as a way to arrest what it saw as a direction that could uh, conflict with uh, Russia's national security interests, like they have in OSCE, for instance. Or any or or the UN are the most the more prominent examples. So I don't think it was um, I don't think it was we would have seen something significantly different. Actually, we probably would have seen uh, uh, the the slow death of NATO with Russia's in, in, uh, direct involvement because fundamentally the institutions were geared on centralized control from the Kremlin. Were geared on using. Uh, barbarism and force to keep the the Russian Federation intact, as as indicated by the uh, the Second Chechen War. And I I don't think that it was really quite reconcilable at that point. I think the opportunities were missed much earlier in the 90s. A lot there to unpack. The bit about the, um, you know, remnancy of NATO is quite, you think it could have disappeared, um, potentially. But um, just just to that point then, but for me, this doesn't this isn't this a, funda- a fundamental lack of understanding of Russia as a country, like uh, not used personally, but I, I think there's been this um, you know boogeyman emphasis that you know the United States wants to uh, constantly portray Russia in a certain light because it gives them a justification by which to conduct foreign policy, uh, someone to uh, you know long-standing adversary. Um, pop culture. I mean, look at the 90s. How many films starring Harrison Ford were there that had evil bad guys as, as the Russians? I'm being slightly facetious, but, um, you know, there were, there were a lot of blockbuster films where the Russians were the primary sort of antagonists. And, you know, suddenly Russia's now disappeared. So uh, this leads me to another question then about, you know, do we not think we need to sort of broaden the way that we understand Russia? Or maybe not just Russia, but just and non-Western line countries. Um, but equally, because of the war, uh, and I want to drill down into some details in a second, but some people look at this war as an opportunity for the United States to completely, once and for all, eradicate Russia's military and its economic prowess, or its capacity to be a long-standing nemesis. So some people argue the point that this war is, I'm not going to go into the theories that it was staged or the West did the coup in 2014 or 13 or something like that, but more that the United States has a longer arcing invested interest in this, which is what I've said, you know, remove this thorn in the side of them and therefore be able to focus on the long-standing systemic risk that is China. What do you say to that? So there was definitely no long-standing uh, grand strategy with regards to um, Russia. I think, you know, Hal Brands has this, uh, uh, has uh, written some interesting things on, you know, if there is a constant thread in, in U.S. grand strategy from World War II on, it's about preserving the uh, Western liberal uh, 
order that's allowed the, the U.S. to, to prosper. Uh, but even then, we did that sometimes quite ineffectively because we completely shifted, pivoted away from uh, recognizing the, the uh, enduring relationships between states uh, uh, to a global war on terror, um, missing the, the warning signs of uh, uh, rising Russian belligerence, um, adversarial uh, indications of a kind of a, a adversarial rise of, uh, of China. I would say that uh, having worked in government, having worked Russia policy for a long time, I think the uh, uh, President Obama's kind of commentary on this, thinking about Russia as a, you know, I'm going to miss the, uh, I'll, this will be a, a, you know, a liberal par- paraphrase of uh, Russia being a, you know, uh, a gas station with nuclear weapons or something of that nature. We didn't pay Russia much mind, actually. The only the only times we did pay attention to Russia was again if we wanted to achieve some general aims with regards to arms control. We did there was no grand strategy to kind of hedge against Russia's rise. We just didn't pay enough attention to it. There was no grand strategy about you know setting up a, a kind of some sort of rope a dope to get Russia to commit to a war in Ukraine so they could uh, break themselves, bleed themselves white. There was there's nothing like that. We we first you know we we don't think like that. If we think beyond kind of, you know, a new cycle or short-term aims, uh, you know, within administration, within administration, if we even get that far, we're doing pretty well. So there's no like long arc between, you know, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, the Biden administration. There's nothing like that. Uh, I wish there was at times. I think, you know, the Vandenberg uh, idea of, um, Politics ending at the nation's shores uh, that may allow uh, allow for a, c- a continuity in foreign policy. If that were was a, a real thing, that would be pretty amazing for U.S. Uh, policy, but it, it isn't. So I guess you know, to me, um, the way I, I see Russia after this war is, um, if we were a gracious victor at the end of the Cold War, and uh, basically said, uh, you know, whatever you want, Russia, we're, we're willing to kind of bend over backwards, excluding, of course, financial support. We're, we're, we're quite accommodating to Russia just so like this, we could preserve our relationship with, with Boris Yeltsin and uh, allow him to kind of manage his own con- constituency with nationalists. Uh, I think this, this time around, we probably need to be a little bit more cautious with Russia. I think we need to be thoughtful and perceive an opportunity to bring Russia in to um, the Western world, uh, but with a high degree of conditionality, a very high degree of conditionality, a painful degree of conditionality that helps deliver on what the Ukrainians are already delivering, which is basically casting off this view of Russian exceptionalism that's tied to a Russian empire, that's tied to territorial holdings around Russia, that they haven't had control of for 30 years and, uh, you know, direct pressure and coercion over its near abroad. So we could continue to press on that with regards to conditionality. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's going to be a sovereign state that gets to uh, choose its own path, but if it wants to co- uh, uh, eliminate or ease back sanctions and then partake in, in international order, it needs to be on the basis of demonstrated abilities to not completely upend uh, the geopolitical situation 
in a way that's harmful to U.S. interests, harmful to uh, the Euro-Atlantic alliance, and harmful to a post-World War II order that has probably allowed for the for an enormous portion of the globe to kind of prosper as a result of uh, this bargain to avoid these large-scale wars and to participate in, in institutions that somehow orient towards a general common good, even if transactionally that doesn't work out. You know, we, there were plenty of missteps, of course. Vietnam and uh, w- w- would be a huge one for us, lots of, lots of wars that we didn't get involved in, but something of that nature. Okay, a lot there to unpack, and uh, there's a couple of things you said that I want to circle back to. But I want to focus, since we're on Ukraine at the moment, to just unpack specifically. Obviously, this is your main focus, and, and, and you know, people can see that from what you, apart from uh, musky Twitter wars. But um, <laughs> um, I, um, okay, so how do you think the war's going, uh, simply? And what do you think of the West's response? Up in, in the beginning of the war, you know, people were quite surprised, I think, by the sheer level of unity that NATO, much of the West, had shown. And, you know, the muted response from, say, China in terms of other than saying that it supports Russia, it's not actually done anything of tangible impact. It's not provided financial or material support. Um, but, you know, we, 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 despite the sanctions, despite a hell load of uh, HMRs and all forms of military you know, equipment. Yes, we've seen Kharkiv, we've seen Kherson, but we're now entering the winter, which is, I think, pretty make or break. I don't see this personally, this war going on for years. I, it could be a war of attrition, but sort of not in an actual active one, more of a frozen conflict. But so to sort of very sub, sub questions here. But one, how do you think the war's gone so far? In, on the battlefield, but also in the grand strategy. How do you see uh, it going through the winter? But also, what do you think of the capacity for the West to remain resolved and united? Because, uh, just for example, you know, some polls have been shown that the Germans are, particularly in East Germany, and that's the remnancy, obviously, of the Cold War, are having mixed feelings about their willingness to support. I mean, Germany particularly has always been a bit on the fence. But how do you how do you see that? And also, what do you think about countries like Hungary that are, well, being a fly in the ointment, allowing energy flows to go from Russia to Serbia via them? What do you think of all those sub-questions? If you want me to repeat any of them, let me know. Okay, that's, that's a lot, but those are <laughs> some excellent questions. So uh, I'll start with uh, maybe uh, work my way ba- uh, backwards. Uh, I think the fact is, when push comes to shove, even places like Hungary will uh, will press as far as they can with regards to you know the Viktor Orban kind of populism that's allowed him to retain power, but won't jeopardize uh, you know the EU partnership that he partnerships that he has. This is indicated recently by the uh, donations that you know that Ukraine that Hungary has given to Ukraine. Which of course it wouldn't have done on, without great pressure, but um, is prepared to do, even at the potential cost of the relationships that Orban has built with uh, Putin uh, when push comes to shove. So I think uh, there, you know, yes, th- there will be some relationships that will be uh, a fly in the ointment. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, Turkey has been a phenomenal partner to Ukraine during this war, but they've also continued to do business with Russia. And profited immensely from it. 
but when push comes to shove, uh, they they seem to uh, resolve around the relationships with the West, not a doomed relationship with Russia, a declining Russia. This war, in a lot of ways, uh, has been astounding because it completely upset the assumptions that we had about who the Ukrainians were and who the Russians were. There was, I think, there was a good article in the Daily Beast actually yesterday or today that talked about the you know the, the enormous kind of intelligence community. Uh, failure in uh, assessing how this war was going to uh, how this war was going to unfold. Uh, I think uh, John Spencer on here also and, and I would would have we had a completely different view on on this um, in opposition to the intelligence intelligence community consensus that this was not going to be a quick war. First of all, that the war was was to me the war was was all but certain as early as you know November of of uh, of uh, twenty twenty one. Uh, and you didn't kind of get the intelligence community resolving around this issue until probably about uh, when when diplomacy completely fell apart in in January. That's where the rhetoric kind of became not hedging rhetoric, but clearly we were headed towards a confrontation. Uh, it also the the uh, driver behind this was a misunderstanding of Russian power and what the Russians were capable of. And misunderstanding of uh, the, the fact that you know this this democracy that's been fighting Russia for eight for eight years at that point already, before the war started, was quite capable of holding out. It's probably a story in part about a mismatch of wills, a mismatch in morale, uh, that the Russians, although they had advanced military capabilities on paper, looked like the, the far superior force with fourth fourth generation plus plus aircraft all sorts of advanced strike capabilities and Ukraine not having any of those, that wasn't going to be the, the, the determining factor. It was going to be uh, a test of wills, a test of whether the Ukrainians had the ability to hold out against the punishing assaults in the early part of, uh, part of this war and then uh, be agile and effective enough to start to retake territory. And, if Russia was drastically overestimated, Ukraine was drastically underestimated. And it still is underestimated to this day. You know, you hear folks like General Milley talk about how you know, we're headed towards a, a frozen conflict. This is the time to negotiate. That's not the way I see this winter. This winter is going to be terrible and miserable for the Ukrainian population. They're going to suffer, but they're going to survive. There are not going to be huge casualties. The, the fact is Ukraine is a massive country and they'll they're getting the kinds of aid they need with regards to uh, power generation, with regards to r- repair parts for utilities. So it'll be painful, but it won't be a disastrous winter. And it will be a more painful winter for the uh, Ukrainian armed forces sitting in trenches. But it will be a disastrous winter for the Russians. They're likely to suffer thousands and thousands of casualties. There is something to be said. You know, I, I served uh, as an infantryman for the first half of my career, and I have this very, very vivid memory of serving in um, in uh, Korea and experiencing minus 25 degree temperature, and it was debilitating. It was paralyzing, and I only had to do it for you know a couple of days at a time, a week or so. It was uh, absolutely miserable, and the Ukrainians care about their people, so they're going to rotate their folks off the front line. They're going to make sure they're properly equipped. The Russians do not care a damn about these people. And it is a just a, a terrible human tragedy. 
as much as I want the Russians to uh, lose and the Ukrainians to win, the human toll is going to be disastrous. There are going to be thousands and thousands of casualties. The Ukrainians are going to continue to make gains. This is not going to be a frozen static line. They're going to continue to make gains through the winter. And right in the moment that right now Vladimir Putin perceives that he's going to be able to launch a, a new offensive in the spring and summer, he's going to realize he doesn't have that kind of force. And what we'll have is a spring and summer campaign in which Ukraine continues to liberate territory and likely forces against all odds and Putin's own iron will to dominate Ukraine. He's going to force Zelensky is going to force Putin to negotiate. The question would be whether they do that with Crimea in play or Crimea uh, out of bounds. I think right now, thus far, Zelensky has kind of indicated that the question of Crimea does not have to be settled on the battlefield. He certainly did this uh, at the beginning of the war. At various points, he's kind of uh, toyed with uh, the rhetoric of liberating uh, Crimea. But I think it's uh, still unsettled, an unsettled matter. If the Ukrainians finally determine that they will liberate uh, Crimea, that's going to probably put uh, um, Putin and his regime in a very, very perilous state. But it's it's a state that Putin himself is driving by not realizing, not being able to perceive how disastrous this winter is going to be and how Russia, in spite of its 140 million people and you know a, a, a massive economic engine, will not be able to win this war. This war was lost months ago. Okay, so a lot there. More specifically then, where is the Russian Air Force? What is going on with the Russian Navy, apart from Moscow? Why haven't we seen more cybernetic attacks? Why or where is Belarus? Are they just doing false flag operations and being basically a sort of big backyard for other parts of Russian uh, equipment? You know, what's going on? I mean, I'm not surprised by much of this. The Soviet doctrine, if you've seen images on Twitter or online, basically they're using manuals from literally the 1940s for some of the regiments that I've seen. Um, But on the Belarusian front, I should mention, actually, we will be bringing on the um, leader of the government in exile, Svetlana, will be joining us hopefully in a a few weeks. Um, So uh, keep a lookout for that, everyone. Tactically level, let's let's dive deep into the nitty gritties. Can you take us through what's going on? Yeah. So, you know, some of this is frankly somewhat inexplicable. I think some of this is the legacy of uh, political leadership providing guidance for a campaign that you can't frankly recover from after the disastrous opening days of this war. If the political leadership before this war said, you only need 150,000 troops don't plan for an air campaign. We don't want to destroy the infrastructure because we need that infrastructure for when we uh, install a puppet government. Don't plan on conducting, uh, you're not going to, you know, this is going to be more of a peacekeeping operation because the Ukrainians are going to bend and break immediately. Then you design a campaign with those fundamental assumptions in mind. There is something to be said about this idea of assumptions. Valid, necessary they're essential, frankly. The assumptions that, that bound how you plan a, a campaign of the sort will determine the outcomes of, the, of that campaign. And what ended up happening is that the, the Putin regime basically didn't launch an, an air camp, a powerful uh, shock and awe air campaign to destroy Ukraine's command and control, destroy uh, the uh, critical infrastructure, 
the way we we did communications infrastructure, whatever the case might be, the way we did in, in, in Iraq. They planned for a peacekeeping operation. And when, the, when they launched this campaign in the first six weeks and were pushed, oppressed out of Kiev, they lost the ability to pr- pretty much conduct this kind of coherent, holistic campaign. They bit off way more than they could chew by going after the whole country instead of going after something much more ran- manageable like a land bridge. Or going after you know uh, two two oblasts, two provinces in, in the east, and they just still have not gained their regained their balance. You could see that on the on the operational and tactical level too. The Russians have not regained their balance from the campaigns around Kharkiv. They're still tr- scrambling to assemble forces to hold those lines. They were not able to to secure the kind of territory they would need to hang on to Kherson. They needed something contiguous, something that would allow them a la- a land crossings or multiple bridge crossings across the Dnieper. They needed to get all the way to Zaporozhye. They didn't. So there are just things that happened at the beginning of this war that doesn't, do not allow for a successful campaign unless they completely shift to a much, much more narrow campaign. If they were, for instance, to move to just preserving a land bridge, forget about Donetsk, forget about Luhansk, forget about large portions of Kherson. If they put all of their uh, their their combat power into retaining a land bridge, that's probably something that they can hang on to. But they're not. They're still fighting for much much more than their military is capable of doing. So, with regards to the to the air force, they've taken uh, in helicopter forces are part of the Russian uh, air force, different from ours. They've taken punishing losses there. The Ukrainians have managed to hang on to a lot of their so uh, and effectively employ. They're Soviet era air defense systems, layered air defense systems. Those have been further enabled by um, tactical air defense, man pads, stinger man pads. They're getting some Avengers. They've got all sorts of systems coming in, you know, operational systems, NASAMs, IRST's. These things are going to make it quite impossible for the Russians to get air superiority. They might have, uh, correction, air dominance. They might have local air superiority along the immediate front lines. And even there, I think that that uh, capability is dwindling. That's not to say that the Russian, the Ukrainians will get it, because they won't. The Russians still have a, a air power as well as air defense that they could interdict Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian fighters uh, across lar- large swaths. So the air power has has been, in certain ways, kind of both irrelevant, increasingly irrelevant. Uh, from the sea power, there was only one thing that they, there were, there were a couple things they were wanting to do. They wanted to embargo uh, trade through the Black Sea. They still have that to a certain extent. So they're still effective. They could do it from over the horizon. Uh, the other thing they wanted to do is they wanted to threaten Odessa. That, that capability was um, eliminated when you had coastal defense systems coming in. Uh, so the Navy is not going to play much of a role, and it was never going to play much of a role in this particular war. If anything, it's going to be a growing vulnerability with the Black Sea bases at Sevastopol. With regards to the, the, um, the Belarusians, I think the fact is that, you know, Lukashenko has a very, very strong survival instinct. And uh, conducting a war against Ukraine, uh, conducting an actual ground war against Ukraine would be suicidal. So he will play at, uh, as close as he can uh, to supporting Russia, but he's not going to, to conduct a, a ground offensive against Ukraine because his forces are going to be decimated. And all those tens of thousands of people that protested him in, in 2020, in August 2020, after the he stole the last election, would come out and 
not wanting to their their sons and brothers and fathers to to die needlessly in uh, Ukraine or would would protest. And I think he's got he's got a general sense of that. So I think um, it's it's also not entirely clear how much leverage Russia has. Of course, they could attempt to go in and, and conduct a coup in Belarus, but then they have another problem. They have to maintain Belarus. That It's not clear that the Belarusians are going to tolerate a Russian regime, given everything that's unfolded over the course of the past nine months. So I don't, I, I think in a lot of ways, Putin's leverage is also a decreasing, and it's a kind of a dance, uh, a typical dance between Belarus and uh, Putin. Uh, but that's not going to amount to uh, uh, an offensive uh, coming from there, at least not employing Belarusian troops. What I want to do now, and I hope the audio works for this, John Spencer, you've been able to join us. And considering we're on uh, this theme of sort of the tactical level, I'd, I'd love to get you in uh, to, 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 to engage Alex um, briefly, because I do have a, some other bigger style questions I want to go back to. But you had a rather interesting specific question. So if you want to chime in now and hopefully it works. Thanks, Peter and, and Alex. It's, it's great to hear from you, my friend. Uh, thanks for all you do and providing my kids that I'm trying to raise with values, examples of what right and wrong are. So my question was, um, I know you've been an advocate for the Gray Eagle and for other systems from the beginning of the war, as I have as well. Um, but you have an insight into, I can, I can make assumptions on the political risk decisions that the U.S. government is making the National Security Council. But what is your opinion on why the U.S. has not yet given Gray Eagle, uh, still withholding, publicly giving the attack homes and other systems that could really have that tactical operational, you know, in this war faster than it's inevitable, you know, wh- where it's going to play out, but just to end it faster? Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, good, good seeing you on here. Yeah, so I think it's a very, very simple calculation. Um, the administration will not be pushed into assuming almost any escalatory risk. Uh, They are fine with this war being fought between uh, Russia and Ukraine and Ukraine liberating its territory. They're less fine with what those implications are for Russia and the the risks of instability uh, uh, that might emerge from a a Russian defeat, but they're prepared to deal with that already. Uh, Hence the, the, you know, increasing support but they are not fine with any risk, escalatory risk whatsoever. Uh, the, they do not want to, to have the U.S. or NATO drawn into a conflict as low as the probability of something like that is. Clearly, the Russians have zero interest in fighting with NATO after a disastrous war uh, in, uh, in Ukraine, where they would get you know, completely obliterated. But there is still a tiny bit of risk associated with that. Somehow... Uh, that spirals into a risk of accident and miscalculation. And then, you know, we're faced with some existential crises. And even if it's like a 1% chance or a half percent chance, the administration is not going to risk that. The problem with this notion is this. Simply put, by not taking some calculated risks, recognizing that Russia has no interest in war with NATO and provision of Gray Eagles or provision of F-16s or provision of M1 tanks is not going to be what propels us into a war with Russia. It's not. Russia is not going to war if we provide any of those capabilities. 
what we seem to real, uh, fail to realize is by not providing him, we're extending the nature of this war or extending this war and the hazards around this war. So think about it this way. And I'm writing this article for um, Foreign Affairs now. But six months from now or nine months from now, when Ukraine is prepared to liberate Crimea and this you know, jewel of of the um, Navy, the Black Sea Fleet is in jeopardy. And this is kind of important component of uh, Russian sense of self, the Crimean Peninsula is under threat. That potentially does, there's a small chance that that does compel Vladimir Putin to be a little bit more adventurous, maybe explore the possibility of WMDs. And that, in, in as a result, potentially draws the U.S. into a situation where it has to respond to the use of WMDs, chemical, biological, nuclear accidents, whatever the case might be. So by not taking some decisions to help Ukraine end this war sooner, and by you know taking this, this question of uh, the final status of Crimea, which is still unsettled, and pushing Ukraine to then choose to liberate it, we are faced with a situation where the risks of uh, an accident or miscalculation are higher. So the one thing that the U.S. doesn't want to do, which is, is risk escalation, materializes because of a long war scenario. I think this is the thing that we, this uh, administration seems to miss. They, they consistently trade off short-term risks, uh, mitigating short-term risks, and forget about the long, how these short-term risks could stack up uh, when we don't underscore deterrence when we don't arm Ukraine, how those could stack up in a very, very hazardous manner to the U.S. That's the part that that I try to urge this administration to think about when I talk to them, uh, both, you know, kind of in my writing, but also when I engage with uh, NSC or state or DOD. Uh, and for whatever reason, that just is not getting through. It's all about short-term risk. And I think part of that may be political risk, too. Thanks a lot, John, for that great question. And, you know, stick around, my friend, if you if you have anything else you want to touch upon. But um, uh, with that, I'm going to want to look forward a little bit. Um, you mentioned Crimea as a bargaining chip, maybe not in those words, but that's maybe more my words. So you think Crimea could be a area of more opportunity for maneuver shall we say but let's broaden out a little bit than just Crimea you know I think it's we, we've got and I'm going to be I've got a you know a wide array of people listening right now who I'm sure some people are vehemently against any form of negotiation with the Russians whatsoever at least while Putin remains in power and I personally want nothing more than that guy to not be anywhere near the reins of uh, the Russian Federation but there are other people who think you know the costs of this war are so just astronomical both psychologically economically you know we can argue that ukraine represents a bit of a battle for you a democracy versus autocracy the the win of the west over sort of the dictatorial shapes of russia and, and such but you know you, you you seem to think that we're going in for a winter that there's going to be much more maneuver than a lot of other commentators so that's quite interesting for itself so could you unpack that a little bit but what is the and this is something i asked um gideon rose and francis for i mean previous conversations we've had francis being a, a member of uh size's fbi fellow uh, faculty as well but you know what's the end game here um i know it's probably a quintessentially cliche question but 
Could you, in your mind, take us through the different scenarios that you see plausible, different timescales? Because, you know, there's more than just Russia's defeated outright, uh, marginal victory. Some people just want this, as I say, to end, for the markets to calm down. Because, for example, I'll put it this way, the British economy in one study was found that uh, the average Briton now will be about 30% poorer than they were in 2008. Now, there's other factors affecting that, of course. But the point I'm trying to make is that this war is going to have ramifications for a long time. And people think, at least from an economic standpoint, not necessarily directly involved in Ukraine and such, that this is just too costly for everybody. So surely it's better to come to the table and try and find some terms. What do you say to those people? So I think what we should recognize is that the whole globe has been subject to Russia sanctions. Uh, it's a Russia sanction or it's a Russia tax this, that has been levied on the whole, war, uh, whole world because of Russia's war against Ukraine. Uh, that's resulted in um, shocks to energy supplies. That's resulted in a mass, r- massive and rampant speculation. That's resulted in, um, in, in all these kind of inflationary pressures building on COVID and a whole bunch of other factors. But it's a Russia sanction that's been applied to the world, and it should be couched in that way. To recognize that this is this is not, you know, uh, political leadership failing uh, in various countries, but it's the sanctions that, that Russia has levied on the, the, the whole the world as a whole. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think there's maybe I'll, I'll add a point on uh, why I think this winter is going to go so badly for Russia. There is a fair bit of anecdotal evidence, but even in this, you know, early stages of winter. Watching the way the Russian troops uh, operate, these are there are not that many kind of trained legacy forces. Uh, there, most of those were destroyed as in, in whole as units. There are some for- forces that still remain. These are conscripts. These are reserve forces, and they're not necessarily disciplined to change their socks, to keep their feet dry to do whatever they need to in order to remain effective in, under winter conditions. On the other hand, there is no leadership to enforce that kind of discipline. On the other hand, with regards to Ukraine, you see a care for soldiers from, from their uh, NCOs and their officers and a rotation of forces. And it will be quite evident in the coming weeks that the Russians are not going to be uh, particularly effective, uh, effective in their defenses. And there will be a lot of room for the Russians uh, or the Ukrainians to exploit those vulnerabilities and to make gains. So if one side is basically paralyzed and the other side gets to pick and choose where to fight, the Ukrainians have been quite effective at uh, liberating territory. They're going to be able to find some ground and achieve some breakthroughs, I think. And I mean, prepare to see uh, these uh, terrible images of you know, frozen troops like there was in World War II. That's what Russia is facing. So I think this, this is not going to be uh, static. There might be uh, um, a decline in some of the combat operations. Really, it's actually fairly fairly localized. There's not a huge amount of fighting along various portions of the, of the front lines. It's really localized around Bakhmut, um, the defensives around the you know kind of Kharkiv salient and things of that nature. But I think you could see the Ukrainians exploiting the Russians' uh, uh, unpreparedness for winter for winter campaigning. What what does this look war look like? I'm gonna I'll do this in, in in terms of probabilities. I think there there is a the most likely probability is that come the end of spring and summer, probably summer, and the Russians are being completely exhausted, 
what you'll have is, and probably some precursors that may even start in the spring, as bad as this winter is going to go for the Russians, is that you'll have the Russians attempt to engage in earnest without uh, prerequisites to negotiations, direct negotiations with with um, Ukraine. I think that's going to start. And the objective there is going to be hold as much territory as they have. I mean, they would like to hang on to a land bridge. They would like to hang on to Luhansk and Donetsk. They're, you know, they're not going to be able to hang on to the, the, this, these ter- this four uh, oblasts that they've annexed for sure. But those are nice to have. The land bridge is, is closer to necessity. Crimea is a necessity. So they're going to attempt to negotiate on that basis. But depending on how poorly the Russians perform, and they're going to perform poorly, Crimea may become come into play as a, a viable military target and is no longer going to be a bargaining chip in which Russia could say, let's just settle this. We don't have to settle this through combat, ground combat. We could just go through a diplomatic process, a negotiation process, let you know the UN step in or let other, other international organizations stay, step in and help determine the final status of Crimea. Because there's zero chance that the, the Ukrainians are going to give it away. They're not going to say, if you end the war and withdraw from everywhere else, you could have Crimea. That's not going to happen. But what could happen is having a roadmap like a Minsk, but this one will be called Crimea roadmap, in which Russia is on the on the on the vulnerable side and is forced to negotiate and, and import international organizations and conduct kind of uh, um, referendums overseen by international. This could play out over the course of years, but it won't be acute. It won't be something that needs to be settled uh, on the battlefield between Russian and Ukrainian forces. That might be, that is probably the most likely scenario. I think there's another scenario that is, that shouldn't be dismissed, that rather than escalating a confrontation with um, Ukraine, when he's, when his conventional forces are spent, Putin has then very few options. He could uh, escalate to weapons of mass destruction, uh, but then that comes with enormous inherent risks including the potential involvement of NATO in one way or another. Um, at least that risk is out there because the U.S. kind of policy position is that's a game changer that could change, you know, the calculus around uh, uh, NATO involvement and things of that nature. So rather than do that, I think Putin could actually just completely withdraw, hold on to Crimea, and use repressive tools on, on the domestic population. He can do that. He hasn't even really started to repress the Russian population this war is still not entirely unpopular. He's, he has to deal with tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of protesters. If he needs to, he could set up gulags. He could set up all sorts of different, uh, employ different, you know, pull shells off, uh, plans off the shelf to repress the population, a restless population that sees him as, as feckless and, you know, as ineffective. He could do that. I think that's a reasonable possibility of how this might end up. I think the lower probabilities are what I alluded to earlier. This notion that Crimea is so important that he's going to take to take whatever steps he needs to in order to warn off Western support. That could be a crescendo of uh, cyber attacks. By the way, he's been doing cyber attacks. It's just that there's a pretty effective campaign to counter him. I mean, is it like every tool that Russia has in its arsenal? No, but they, the Russians have done, done this. Uh, they've probed, they've attacked, and there's just been a, an effective ca- uh, uh, cyber response. But you could see that. You could see attacks on, on uh, NATO infrastructure, non-attributable attacks, uh, deniable attacks, to, again, warn off that uh, we're, we're headed towards a bilateral confrontation between NATO and, and Ukraine. 
and then he could potentially do the things that that would be very troubling like industrial chemical accidents staged accidents affecting uh, large populations uh that could be a nuclear plant that has a a, a significant nu- nuclear accident on the scale of chernobyl or worse those could those are probability those are uh, significant probabilities low probabilities but not can't be dismissed because of the consequence so i think those are the potential uh scenarios that we can see on unfold i think one of the most interesting things about this sort of part of the conversation i don't like to use the word speculation too much i, I think there's a difference between speculation and conjecture in that conjecture you have a bit more of an actual basis of what you know you, you're, you're basing your sort of ideas on while speculation is just sort of complete and utter chaos sometimes but uh, one of the things i've experienced personally and, and i think other people is because there's a difference between conducting min- military simulation or scenario planning uh, or game theory and trying to work out every single potential avenue that this could take because there's a million and one options maybe they have incremental differences but they are still different and you have to plan for them effectively but people hear that and they think oh so you want there to be a compromise you want ukraine to give in and give up and there are hardliners obviously on both sides so uh, one of the things i've experienced which has been quite an interesting and maybe you yourself have too um, on social media is sort of a lot of backlash from people because they hear what I say and they think that's what I want. And it's not, no, no, it's not what I want. I want Ukraine to win and for them to have their sovereignty and self-determination. But equally, uh, you know, I try to be, call it technical or pragmatic and sort of say, well, what about some kind of, you know, middle ground scenario? Clearly now, though, we're in such in over our heads, at least the Russians are, that this war doesn't have an end in sight. But a lot of people think about the implosion of Russia now, I definitely don't think an implosion of Russia is likely, but I do think that there is the you know, plausibility of Putin being replaced somewhat. I mean, one has to think about his inner circle. I don't think someone like Shoigu has the capacity to do it, really. I mean, he's a bit of a clown. You know, he was installed, what, 10 years ago, and he's got some military capacity, but I don't think he has the hardcore, I don't know, what, if, what word you want to call it, sort of just... They can't think of the word for a minute. He, ruthlessness that Putin does. Some people tout the head of the FSB. Some people consider the head the mayor of Moscow. What about sort of a uh, an, a possibility of Russia just dissipating as a scenario, or just an internal conflict? And and I'll to just frame that even more because he's tried to receive support from Kazakhstan. He's tried to support support from Serbia. Countries that are meant to be long-standing allies or aligned hey, nations are just like. We're not getting involved in this at all. What do you say to that? So I, I think you, there are a couple of things. I'd, first of all, the, on the topic of um, negotiations, I think the fact is that the reluctance in a discuss, having any discourse around negotiations suggests that the pressure is on Ukraine to give something up. Russia has shown no lag, no interest right now in uh, compromising, in setting terms for withdrawal. It still has maximalist games. So the, the idea that, you know, Ukraine should, should continue to say we're open to negotiations, I'm not sure if that's a winning strategy here. I mean, behind the scenes and uh, within the U.S. policy community, there, there should be consideration of, you know, what, what the terms uh, for the end of this war would look like. But I think publicly, uh, I, th- I see very little utility in having a, a conversation about 
you know, Ukraine being uh, willing to negotiate because they are. It's really about Russia's willingness to negotiate. With regards to um, the integrity of Russia, you know, I would have, if you asked me this question nine months ago, I, I saw no risks to Russia's integrity. If you asked me this question six months ago, very, very little. The longer this war goes, the greater there is a risk to Russia's integrity. And I think that's true for a couple of different reasons. It's a massive country. There's almost kind of some sort of uh, uh, centrifugal acceleration uh, around, you know, as the Earth spins, it's hard for the Kremlin to retain, you know, the, the Far East or, uh, you know, Tuva, whatever the, the case might be, you know, these, uh, these various regions. And it's always been a challenge. That's why you needed a kind of a strong central apparatus uh, out of the Kremlin to keep everybody in line. There were periods of time where it was weak under Boris Yeltsin. And, uh, you know, basically he said, take as much uh, autonomy as you need. Uh, choke, you're going to choke on it. And uh, only for, to, for the Kremlin to regain power and then re reassert itself. I think there, there's likely to be at least that kind of um, uh, demand for greater autonomy, for uh, demand for kind of controlling regional budgets. I think some of their ethnic communities may very well assert themselves. The biggest one Biggest dangers are not going to be necessarily even uh, the Burats in the in the in Siberia, but the Chechens uh, that you know have the the means to resist the Kremlin. I think that's a legitimate possibility that you could, if you're going to see danger signs emerging, it's going to be in the places of uh, places like the North Caucasus. And I think it's the longer this war goes, uh, the more the Russian military, which would potentially be used to subdue these regions is weakened, the greater the danger to the integrity that Russia is. Uh, and this is not something that the U.S. policy community is missing. You know, I wrote an article over the summer in which I <coughs> highlighted the activities of this, uh, this, this something called the UNGroup that um, Bob Gates stood up when he was the Deputy National Security Advisor <coughs> in 1989 after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And what you have is um, kind of a red team to think about worst case scenarios. And they settled on, you know, kind of a balkanization, a Yugoslavia scenario in which there's civil war, uh, but with a nuclear power. And they were deeply concerned about like nuclear, uh, errant nuclear weapons, nuclear proliferation and things of that nature, and double down on trying to keep the integrity of the Soviet Union and then the Kremlin uh, uh, intact. I think there are people that are concerned about that now and uh, are concerned about what happens to Russia in a, a disastrous loss, I think that is beyond our control as the U.S. government. We should recognize that. It was beyond our control then. When uh, George Bush gave his chicken Kiev speech about uh, basically casting uh, a doubt over kind of self-determination, he did it with this, this kind of fear in mind. But he had no control over the, the integrity of the Soviet Union. We have no control over the integrity of the Russian Federation. It's going to happen because of the decisions that, that Putin makes, because of the, the defeats that are delivered by the Ukrainians. The best we could do is plan for the contingencies and uh, try to minimize the risks, set conditions for um, set conditions that would enhance U.S. national security in, in the potential eventuality of a fragmented Russia. Alex, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Any sort of, you know, things you'd really want to emphasize in this conversation? Any Twitter threads you've got coming up uh, attached, you know, in, 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 uh, in feud with Musk or uh, just uh, some degree of optimism? Sure. So I guess I'd just leave with this notion. I, I, I 
describe myself as as an optimist. I think uh, the fact is I am optimistic. I tend to be optimistic about the the country, the general international picture, based on the fact that we received we we really got a we were very very fortunate with the fact that you had the Ukrainian leadership, Ukrainian people resisting um, this aggression from Russia. That's probably preserved the international system for 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 the foreseeable future and to uh, improve U.S. national security. Uh, I'm apprehensive about our, our own divisions within the U.S. I think there's a, a great deal of complacency over the fact that things will be okay. They'll be if they are okay. They'll be that'll be the case only because we've helped make it okay. I tend to use the whole you know here right matters if we make it matter. Uh, we, we, bottom line is, you know, we need to be engaged in our own political systems. We need to be able to condemn, uh, extremism and, and populism and, and st- stand up for the values, uh, not succumb to our fears. You know, that's what Elon Musk or Donald Trump, uh, or any of these kind of authoritarian figures, uh, would hope for the, a denouncement <coughs> that could silence opponents. That's definitely not going to be, uh, the way I, I respond to these things. So I would encourage, you know, my team members here to do the same. And, and thank you very much, um, uh, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, to all of those listening, uh, this was a conversation in partnership with SICE's Foreign Policy Institute. Uh, without them, I wouldn't have been able to have met Alex in person, who I am sitting across from the table. He even was using my headphones, so um, he looks absolutely exhausted. Um, and um, But I, I'm delighted, well, uh, delighted to have had the, uh, the honour of speaking with him. I thank each and every one of you for listening. We were also streaming on Clubhouse, so thank you to those of you listening on Clubhouse. And, you know, uh, I hope that we can have future conversations with Alex and other members of the FPI community. Uh, and if you have any recommendations for me that you'd like to, to bring on, uh, then do get in touch. Uh, my DMs are open. Uh, we'll be hosting a conversation with uh, James Palmer of Foreign Policy Institute tomorrow. Uh, and if you enjoyed this, then uh, you can find other examples above in the pinned links. There's a few episodes. I mentioned my one with Francis Fukuyama. And as I said before, if you enjoy my line of questioning, you could check out my Substack. I just started that where I try to sound half as uh, intellectual as Alex does. And if you really want to support us, uh, you could do so via Patreon. You can take care of all. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at the global gambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app. Listen in in real time and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.